Um, so when you introduced me, you said University of Plymouth. Now I'm assuming everyone's going to realise that that's in Devon in England, not in the US for starters. So um, <laughs> the um, so gig rowing is the full term is Cornish pilot gig rowing, but okay. it's a little bit wider um, geographically now than just Cornwall. Um, so it's a really uh, so it's fixed seat rowing for starters. So we don't have a slide like in normal boats that you see on TV. Um, and it's a very traditional form of rowing um, in the southwest of England, uh, and it's really old. So the boats originally, like we race in our big championship, the World Championships um, that we hold over here, we race against boats that are like 200 years old. So mm -hmm. they're 32 foot long, they're solid wood, they're clinker built, so they're traditional build. There's only about six boat builders um, in the southwest. There's one in London as well now. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to solpre.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today awesomely does things that I have no idea about, so I'm excited to be really educated today on some new topics, which is really cool. Um, she is a PhD student at the University of Plymouth in marine biology. Uh, she's a world champion gig grower, which when my assistant Joe sent that over, I said, what the heck is that? And I had to do some research. Um, she has two very fluffy border collies, which I'm sure I'm going to ask about here in a second. Uh, welcome to the show, Madeline Steer. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having me. You know, one of the things I forgot before we got going, I forgot to ask is if you prefer Maddie or Madeline, because I know your handle is Maddie, but then Joe said it to me as Madeline. Maddie. Yeah. Okay. Maddie. Well, that's, and that's what I would assume, and that would be my tendency, because that's, my niece is Maddie as well, so I'm like, do I just want to call you Maddie because that's what I'm used to, or is that who you would actually prefer? No, Madeline's a serious <laughs> side. <laughs> nope, nope. Well, I I need like a I need like a very serious hat I can put on. Yeah. Now we're asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> so you're telling me, uh, I, so I we'll start off with the border collies. You're telling me, no, I don't have any kids, but I've got two border collies that that assumingly uh, make you exercise because they need exercise. Um, how do you end up with two? Because it seems like yeah. one high energy dog is enough for me. So, so what, what was that decision? Did, did they both come at the same time? How did that happen? No, so we, um, we wanted Border Collie for a long time and eventually managed to persuade my partner to get one a couple of years ago. Um, but I normally would rescue animals, but because it was our first dog, my partner persuaded me to get us to get a puppy. So we got Leith uh, like nearly three years ago. Um, and he's been great and we love him, but border collies do tend to attach onto one owner more than the other and it was my idea that Leith has sort of decided that Russ is his main person in the house so I did yeah. all his training um and I like love him to bits but he just absolutely dotes on Russ and it really irritates me <laughs> <laughs> so um then a friend sent me a text saying oh you don't want a deaf border collie from a farm do you it needs rehoming this was last September. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, send a video. Worst mistake ever. So she sent the video and then I went to see B 
be the border collie that's deaf um, and came home with her. Yeah. So, yeah. So Leith has um, got a big, well, a little sister. Um, he's a big brother to a deaf border collie, but she's great. She's fine. She's she's um, settled in really well. So, yeah, they're, they're a really nice distraction from work. I always feel like, so I've not had a dog for the longest time. I had one growing up, but uh, the policy at the time was dogs stay outside. So I didn't, we didn't really like interact with the dog I had. Uh, and then growing up, it was like almost all my pets somehow, um, I'll call them rescues, but they found me. Like mm. my the first pet that I ever had that was rescued, quote unquote, was a bird, actually, that had escaped from a local pet store and basically flew to my house and we caught and kept. And it's just been a series from there. Cats, uh, our dog Toby, who's over here sleeping next to the radiator to stay warm. Um, it, it seems like animals find us. But yeah. thinking about dogs in particular, rescuing dogs, if you're trying to rescue cats, you've got this like territorial thing to deal with. Like if you bring a new cat into the house, the other cat's like pissed immediately. Like what is that animal doing in my house? Dogs, I feel like are easier... Yeah. To kind of get into a pack and be like, okay, cool, another dog. Like, this is yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Leith was a little bit of an only child um, about it to start with. Mm-hmm. And he, the problem, because B's deaf, he'd try and play with her. And then she couldn't, she was quite rough playing because she grew up on a farm with lots of dogs and she had to be quite boisterous. So she'd go a bit too far with the playing, wouldn't mm-hmm. hear Leith like squeal. And then it would just end up in a fight. And yeah. that happened for like a couple of months. But then they just they just don't play anymore, which is a bit of a shame. But it's it's a lot more um, harmonious, just them staying. They, they, they get so much exercise that they just sleep when they're at home. Sleep and eat in yeah. front of them. Yeah. So, yeah, no, they're fine now, which I'm really glad. So, yeah. Because they'll be around for a while. They're both really young, so we'll have them for you know potentially fifteen years together, hopefully. Yeah, no, it's like the it's nice when there's peace in the house and the animals aren't like going crazy. We're fortunate with Toby that he's actually it's kind of a long story. We we found him and we met his original owner and then we ended up with him, but he's eleven now and he just sleeps most of the day. Uh, he has his little is a uh, Jack Russell Terrier mix, so mm. he's not real big, but um, he has his little bouts of energy, and then he's tuckered out for the next twenty hours, and <laughs> he's he's good to go. We've we've actually discovered that B from the farm. We don't think she's pure border collie because um, I saw a picture on um, Instagram of a, a an Australian blue healer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a spitting image of B. She doesn't really look like a border collie. We don't think she is. But um, and then I read all the breed description, and she her all of her mannerisms and and habits and her herding. She she goes pelting in and like goes for heels, you know, mm-hmm. and snaps. She uses Leith as her herding thing. Um, poor dog. He's very tolerant. <laughs> but uh, so we think she's mostly blue healer which is a really unusual breed in the uk you don't get them but the farmer doesn't think she's one of those he's adamant she's pure border collie so it doesn't really matter she's nice she's cool if i remember off the top of my head i think that's a really pretty dog 
I feel like I know somebody with one. They're really unusual. So they're the only domestic dog breed to be bred originally with a wild dog because they're part dingo. Mm -hmm. And she looks like a dingo. Like all my friends call her dingo dog. Okay. So I was like, actually, I think she might be one. <laughs> <laughs> you like, like, wait a second, what did I bring in my house? <laughs> yeah. yeah, she is nuts. So, yeah. So we don't know what she is really, but she's happy. So that's the main thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I have to ask about the rowing. And you have to, you know, just apologize the the lack of knowledge. I come from land-based sports being in the midwest so i'm in the middle of the country we have some lakes but like water sports are just not huge here um so i've got a lot of questions first i guess i could just start with what is gig rowing yeah um so when you introduced me you said university of plymouth now i'm assuming everyone's going to realize that that's in Devon in England, not in the US, for starters. So um, <laughs> the um, so gig rowing is, the full term is Cornish pilot gig rowing, but okay. it's a little bit wider um, geographically now than just Cornwall. Um, so it's a really, uh, so it's fixed seat rowing for starters. So we don't have a slide like in normal boats that you see on TV. Um, and it's, very traditional form of rowing um, in the southwest of England uh, and it's really old so the boats originally like we race in our big championship the world championships um, that we hold over here we race against boats that are like 200 years old so mm -hmm. they're 32 foot long they're solid wood they're clinker built so they're traditional build there's only about six boat builders um, in the southwest there's one in London as well now um, and they're built from uh, mainly elm, so originally Cornish elm, but we can't get elm in Cornwall anymore, so we ship it in um, with a hardwood keel. Um, and they're be built specifically for speed, so they're pilot boats. So the original boats um, were in the Scilly Isles, which are the islands off of the foot of, of Land's End. Um, and also in New Lynn, like on the mainland, just on the mainland in Cornwall. Um, and they are so it's six rowers with a coxswain steering at the back. You've got one or each, um, and you also have a pilot seat in the very front. So a pilot would sit in the front, um, they'd see a tall ship coming in um, to the Scilly Isles, really, really rocky, really, really dangerous navigation for shipping. So they had these teams of, of people that were, they were privately employed. So the boats were, were privately owned and they'd employ a team of rowers. And the idea was the fastest gig to get a ship and put their pilot on board would get the job, which got them money um, to bring it safely into port. Usually from the Scilly Isles, they'd be going um, either, maybe coming into the Scillies, but usually going over towards Penzance Way or Falmouth. So, that's where the pilot boat bit comes in. And because they were built for speed, um, uh, they weren't always very well paid. So um, the crews liked to race. So they used to race each other for money and it was kind of a bit of a sport. Um, this is like 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. So it was really popular, but only in a very specific place in Cornwall. So um, sort of then obviously steam engines came in and the boats um, weren't used anymore um, but a couple of boats did survive on the Scillies 
Um, and then in the 80s, um, a couple of towns in Cornwall, Mevigissi and Newquay, especially Newquay Rowing Club, um, went over to the Sillies and rescued some boats that were rotting on the beaches, brought them back over to Newquay, um, which is the north coast of Cornwall, renovated them and started up a really small rowing circuit racing uh, in Cornwall. Um, and that was in the 80s. And then it just got more and more popular. Um, so there were more towns in Cornwall joining in. So new boats were built um, and they were they used a blueprint from a boat called um, the Treffery, which is still in Newquay. Um, and all new gigs had to be designed to exactly the same specification so that there was, you know, there were rules. You couldn't, because they, you can build really fast handmade wooden boats, like, right. but obviously they need to all be fairly similar. Um, so, yeah, through the 90s and early 2000s, it just got more and more popular. So I started rowing when I left university in 2005. Um, I came down, so I saw these boats when I was holidaying in Cornwall when I was a kid. Um, but I grew up in a couple of counties east, so there weren't any clubs there. But when I moved down to, to near Plymouth, I saw these boats on the water and was like, ah. Oh, those are those boats that I used to see in Cornwall when I was on holiday. So um, I started rowing in the first world championships that I went to in 2006. There was 89 boats on the start line, which is a lot. Um, and the, so the Silly Isles called them the world championships. Um, and initially it was just sort of Cornwall and Devon. But actually now we do have clubs come across from America. There's a big, big gig rowing um, um, seen in uh, Holland in the Netherlands um, and we also get some French teams over some Faroe Islands um, but it, it's kind of mainly a UK a UK thing generally apart apart from that one competition in the Sillies um, but now last year on the start line for the women there were 169 boats um, but they're fantastic boats they're handmade so they all have their own little like personalities as a boat um, but they're all hand painted as well on all different colours and they're named so the club I row for we have um, white boats um, and are so not not hugely bright but the names we, our names are Amazon um, and there's a reason for all the names you name them after like something local um, so we've got Essa, Miller's Daughter um, and the Anglanville is our best boat so sort of we've you renew your fleet because they're wooden, they take a lot to maintain. So we sell off the oldest boat after sort of 10 years or so and buy a new boat and then that becomes our best racing boat. Um, but they're quick, like the men can, I think the men can get up to sort of nearly 10 knots, maybe nine knots. Um, yeah, it's, you know, we can, we can go pretty fast, but it's all in the sea. So we just, we don't row on inland water, we row at sea and they're designed to cope with really rough water. So I am not familiar with knots in terms of translating it to land speed. Is what does that translate into kilometers an hour? Do you know? I'd have to Google. <laughs> <laughs> this is telling you we're like some things are metric, some things are imperial. I literally have absolutely no idea. Hang on, let me Google it. That's it. That's one of the things where I was like. I was going to Google it. And I was like, well, I'll just ask me first before I start like clacking away on my keyboard trying to figure it out. I don't even, we don't even use kilometers an hour here. So, well, see, I was going to ask for miles per hour because it's what we use, but I was just like, I was, I was thinking you would be kilometers an hour. So, 
We're miles an hour. Okay. So it's 18, 10 knots is 18 kilometers an hour. Um, hang on. So it's probably, knots are almost, yeah, like 11 it's miles fairly, an hour. It's fairly similar, to be honest, yeah. Yeah. They're not too far off. Um, yeah, I mean, we don't we don't have a speedo in the boat, so the only time we can really know how fast we're going is if we've got a boat running alongside us, um, and they've got a speedo on. So, um, but yeah, it's it's around that. You can, I think, somewhere in the country, uh, men's teams managed to get a water skier or a wakeboarder up behind them. They were okay. going enough for that. So yeah, but then the boats also, if you have a following sea, they can surf. So like the Australian surf boats, but it's scary because they're not really meant to surf. So like you'd be going along and the wave would like pick up the back um, mm -hmm. and this is where the rudder is. So you, it's good because you pick up speed and you can make quite a lot of, um, you know, you, you can overtake people potentially. And it has happened on finishing lines of major championships where somebody in second place has surfed past the people that were winning the whole race um, and overtaken them one but the problem is the rudder comes out of the water and you don't have steerage so and you're going quite fast and getting you know increasing increasing speed so it's okay as long as you don't catch a crab we call it so when the oar catches under the water and like and you can't control it so sometimes you have to ship your blades um if you're gonna surf but um, it doesn't happen a lot but it, when it happens it's quite spectacular this seems like a strategic gamble where it's like Okay, you know you can't steer, but you're like, well, we're not going to win. we got to try something, yeah. so yeah. might but as well. Kind of, the, the, it, only, you can only catch a certain wave because the boats are quite long and quite narrow. So right. it's only a certain like frequency of wave that, you'll actually, okay. that would actually pick the boat up. I've been in a boat where I've, I have surfed quite very fast over quite a long period. Like We had to ship our oars, and we were doing like – the coxswain thinks we're doing about 19 knots, which we were planing. So the boat lifted out of the water a bit and, right. you know, a spray coming off. It was pretty scary. We didn't want it to stop, to be honest. So. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's, you, so you're talking about going 9, 10 knots. And then if you're going 19 knots, like, it, even if, like, say you did that all the time, you would probably get a little more used to it. But yeah. anytime it's like, okay, I'm used to whatever mm -hmm. speed, like on my bike, you know, say I'm going... 10 miles an hour and then I go down a hill and I'm going 20 miles an hour. Well, like the perception of speed, the, yeah. especially in your case, the lack of control, because you've doubled your speed, like there's just a whole other um, perception to what's going on where you're like, I'm not comfortable with this. I don't like okay. it. Well, the whole thing about rowing is that you're in control, like majorly in control. Yeah. Um, we plan our start, our first four minutes. Um, so most of our races are a kite course. So we, we go out and you row maybe four minutes, six minutes, and then you turn around a boy. Um, so you, you turn um, to the left around. We have stroke side and bow side. So like stroke side will pull us around the mark. Um, and then there's three marks normally. So you do a kite shape and then back into the start finish line. Um, but the whole race we plan um, so that we know exactly what we're doing. 
um, but you can't plan. We we kind of try and practice a bit for surfing because you have to catch the wave, like if you're a surfer, so you need to increase your stroke rate and shorten your stroke a little bit and get the boat, you know, up onto the wave. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't. I mean, surfing's not really something that, that happens that often, but going trying to push into heavy seas and wind is more like it is very common like we row in in any conditions so um getting used to as a crew rowing um against wind and tide and into waves is quite important because um the gunnels like the side of the boat isn't that high so um on flat water they're really nice to row but technique over time has changed so i mean i don't know that anybody any of your viewers might might google it um Cornish pilot gig rowing but some of the older pictures you see people you reach right forwards um, at an angle and then you follow the arc of the oar and they finish not leaning back that far but with their oar handles right over like move me so right over here mm-hmm. whereas that, and that's just not very good like you're not strong at this point if you're twisting your body you want to be fairly straight and row like modern boats row so now we row a lot straighter. So we pull our oar in a little bit and we reach out over our feet like we're doing a deadlift. And then we row into our chest, but we lean right far back. And that's how you get the length of the stroke. So because you're leaning back and you've got your hands here, if a wave comes up and in, like envelopes your oar at the end, you're stuck here, really. You can't get it out very easily. So that's what we practice a lot of, um, is rowing in... in you know, heavy seas. I mean, Plymouth, where we train, is is a natural harbour, so we have we don't really get to row out into open sea here. So we we drill it into ourselves when it's rough in the in the river. Um, you know, we drill it in how we're going to cope in rougher water. But I mean, our crew, the crew that I've rowed with for the last three years, is has got between us about a hundred years of experience. Um, we've all rode for sort of a minimum of 10 years really mm. and then some 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 of the girls started as juniors so um yeah as kids and the the dad coxswains us so <laughs> okay there's, there's a lot of experience in the boat and and that's that's where the, the you can get some you know quite a lot of benefit really from the experience um because the sport's growing in popularity a lot in the UK, there's a lot of new clubs and they do struggle um, on the rowing circuit because they haven't got the knowledge there of how to make the boats go fast. You can, you know, it's not brute force and ignorance. It might be a fixed seat. We might be rowing a, a pure wooden boat with wooden oars, um, but it's it's not brute force and ignorance. There's, there is a lot of technique involved. Um, a lot of technique and trying to get you rowing really tightly when you've got wind and tide and waves you know it it, it takes a long time and it, you get like anything you just hit hit the sweet spot and in a case where you've got a crew of six it's an amateur sport so you know we're all working and we've got a bit to get down the river to train together but if you just can get that six people together that can commit the same level and train um, to get the fitness there and then they also click in the boat so you know we row very similar together we complement each other the boat sits nice and, sh- and flat in the water we're all doing exactly the same stroke so it's not you know 
wobbling around because people are doing different things because every every little thing will take speed off the boat so mm. it took the club I row for has been around for sort of 30 years and the men have been very successful in in the 90s and early 2000s but it wasn't until um I think it was 2015 2016 the crew won for the first time at the world championships and then one of the girls fell pregnant um so they needed a replacement and so I went up into the crew from the B crew um which was nerve-wracking going back to the world championships as a defending champions but Mm -hmm. with me as the addition (laughs) oh god Oh, if we come second or worse, like, there's quite a lot of pressure, so, Mm -hmm. um, but thankfully it was fine, we won, so. So, I'm wondering, like, how long does a race actually last time-wise? Um, so they, they do vary, because they're slightly different formats, so during the summer, it's a summer sport, really, so, we have a regatta every weekend during the summer, um, you know, wherever in Cornwall we decide to go. So that every single club will have their own regatta, but we we stick to sort of our area so that we don't have to travel that far. And also Cornwall is still, still kind of the hub of the sport and it's where our main competition is. So we want to race competitive races against our main competitors. So. So we race in Cornwall and those are the, the kite courses. So they they can range between like 12 and like 18 minutes. Okay. Um, it will vary depending on, they'll, they'll shorten it if the weather's really bad because we just don't go as fast. So, um, and then the very first race of the year is the World Championships in the Sillies, which is a bit weird, but um, it's just always been that weekend. So, um, that is actually straight courses so they're, they're they're kind of sprints you do a seeding race um is the very first race of the day on the saturday um so you have it. it's amazing actually this is something that's probably worth googling it's, it's on youtube um the very first race of the, of the world championships for the men and the women like they're two separate races but all of the gigs go on one start line mm-hmm. so you've got 170 boats on one start line that's like about one and a half to two miles long mm-hmm. and they have drones up to try and get it straight so it kind of ends up being a big banana yeah but we all race we all go off at the same time so it sounds like a bit like you're in a war zone um and then they that seeds you then into categories so you have the top group the first 12 boats are in the a group second 12 in the b group so on until the letters are the, the scoreboards yeah. get bigger and bigger every year as more boats join more clubs join so and then you have sprint races um from so it's all between the islands in the silly so there's lots of lots of little islands um so we row from tresco back across to um st mary's into the harbour and that's about 1.3 nautical miles so it takes us we train very specifically for 12 minutes so our whole training program for the six months before the championships is aiming to get us as fit as we can be for 12 minutes mm-hmm. um, ironically for all the years I've been in the A crew we've had a following wind or waves and we've done it in like less than 10 so you, you get to the end and you're like obviously you're knackered but you're like oh that was quick 
It wasn't so bad. It's okay. We've wasted those extra two minutes for the last every training session for the last six months. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, it's like, it's like, not, it's not quite. It's a little bit longer, but it's like comparable to five k speed, where it's like, I'm not this fast anymore. But like trying to run like a in the fifteens for your five k, and it's like, if if I somehow if you ran like a downhill course and you finished in thirteen, you're not gonna be like, no. well. I wasted all those months of training to, to, to miss two minutes. It's not always like, okay, no, it compounded, and then we just had things in our favor. It's just, it's just a, it's like a nice bonus. It's like a, it's like a little yeah. dessert on top, a little treat where it's like, hey, you could have gone the extra two minutes, but we just gave it to you today. Well, to be honest, we couldn't. So, um, <laughs> the last couple of years, so, um, twenty uh, seventeen and eighteen, we won. The first year we won by a couple of boat lengths, but 2018 we had a good race with so a Cornish crew from Falmouth. Um, those ladies used to be multiple world champions a um, couple of about six, seven years ago, um, and they came back together as a crew after various like children and operations and stuff. Um, they, I think, wanted to see how they pitched up against the new kids on the block, which was us. So, um, yeah, they came back two years ago. Um, so the very first championships we had together with them, we managed to beat them um, by about a boat length, I think, um, by the end of the, the 11 minute race or 12, 12 minute race. But um, last year, we, um, they're a much bigger crew because your fixed seat is all about leverage. So if you're tall, you're a bigger lever. So it's an advantage and they are a big crew. We're all quite small. Um, I'm the shortest at five foot five ish. Um, but, uh, so we had a big job on our hands. We knew we were going to struggle to beat them. Um, so we saved ourselves for the final. We didn't really race until the final. Um, and then we gave it our best shot. Um, and they were beating us by boat lengths for the whole race. Uh, but then the last 200 meters we passed spurt on, um, and we got level with like nearly level with them. And then we went over the line and nobody knew who had won. And we overtook them with the run on the boat. Like we stopped, we all stopped rowing, but the run of the boat, our boat was going faster. Um, but they, it was a photo finish and they got it. So, um, but we, I've never experienced a feeling like it when sort of 200 meters to go you're gaining on them and the coxswain Steve our coach who race coxes us as well was absolutely screaming at us because <laughs> we were doing it we were yeah. gaining on them and he was like come on you're gonna do it and he, but he was like you need more you need more and you're giving like I mean I can't really remember yeah the last minute um and the trouble is the oar's not tied in so you can't drop it at the end like we've like fallen off our seats and um yeah but although we came second like that was as races go you can't really ask for a sort of better experience if you mm. want competition and we wanted competition we wanted like we didn't want to dominate the sport. Well, obviously it's nice, but you're there to compete. Yeah. So there's a challenge laid down. You know, they were a big crew. We had to be super fit and super technically accurate to beat them. So yeah, we nearly did it. 
but just not quite. So. No, I, I, I absolutely understand. And there are like a lot of people like kind of surrounding family and some friends, depending don't really understand is like, so I, um, I do triathlon now. I ran originally and then post-college began doing triathlon. And historically, I basically try to move up um, so that I don't win. Like, I've only ever won one race in my, like, 20 years of racing. And it's partly because there's something enjoyable, like, about getting your butt kicked and knowing you put everything out there that you could. Like, you, there's still a challenge. And, like, you were pushed to the limit, not just, like, like you said, if, if you're just dominating everybody, that would be nice in one aspect. But then it's like, am I really being challenged? You know, am I in the right class of people? Is it, you know, is it too easy because I'm so much better? Or am I racing people that just aren't as fit? So there, there's something in there about, like, knowing that you could have gotten beat or that, you know, you were just barely that makes it more exciting than if you, it was just like, like in your case, if you'd won by 10 boat lengths, you'd be like, okay, mm. was it really a race? Yeah. Like six months worth of training. I mean, it, that sounds really like, obviously the other crews are really good as well, but we were, yeah, it, you want a race. That's what okay. you're there for. You want the competition. So yeah. But the amount of training that, is needed for an amateur sport like I mean we don't even have access to physiotherapists nutritionists nothing um it costs a fortune to keep yourself going with work with family life um you know that I had to, we we traditionally the club's not very good at, at thinking about anything other than on the water and on the rowing machine um, so, you know, we started doing weights together, strength and conditioning, but, we, you know, we pay for all of that ourselves. And then diet and nutrition, you know, we soon realised we can't sustain that level of training without actually thinking about what we're eating. So, um, and, you know, it, it's a really quite a rural area down here. And there's a couple of, you know, farmers, wives and daughters that are in the crew and um, trying to get them to sort of, think about their diet when everyone's so busy and they're like yeah we that's what we eat like I'm not doing anything different and I need cake you know while I'm you know <laughs> on the farm or whatever and you're like everybody needs cake yeah we do we do but not every day um yeah and not just before training uh so yeah so we started getting a lot more advice um and it definitely helped especially on race day um controlling our nutrition on race day sort of we realized it was a nice it was a nice learning curve for us all to go through together um so yeah they think the whole club thinks about it a lot more now um and sort of sports massage and we've got a good physio that we can we can go and use um because it's quite it is quite demanding um on your body really like you know training every day with work and and stuff so um yeah, it's it's a very repetitive movement, so it's not impact. It's not like running; you don't get those kind of injuries. But I I, I suffer with tendonitis quite often, so yeah. um, just from repetitive. Um, so it's and that's a tricky one to control, really. So, um, but it's all part of the fun, really. Like it's um, yeah, I, I love it. It's uh, 
it's it's another good distraction from everything else. You get, go and have a row on the river after work, um, yeah. and you just, you just forget about everything else, and you get in the zone. How's the how's the, like the culture of the sport? So, I, I the reason I ask this is that um, so episode. 40 with Evan party, which as we're talking is not out yet, but will be by the time your episode's out. Um, he is now a pro off-road triathlete, but like he grew up, who grew up rowing and he talks about, he talked about like, he's used to this very like gentlemanly, uh, culture of the sport. Not like, you know, this kind of, I'll say almost brutish, like American sport culture. That's like, you know, trash talking everybody. It's more like you race and then everybody's still friends after, like before and afterwards. There's no like, yeah, hard feeling. So, like, is the culture the same in gig rowing or, or what have you experienced? Yeah. So, um, the history of the sport means there's a lot of tradition with mm. it. So, um, and it's it, unfortunately it is actually kind of dying out a little bit which is a real shame because so like singing going going to the pub and singing sea shanties um is a huge thing because it, it you know it goes part and parcel with those crews what they used to do historically mm-hmm. um and it's a real cornish thing um you know sea shanties so there's quite a lot of singing with it on the social scene but um, it's not the rowing like the, the sort of Cambridge Oxford in the UK river rowing. Um, right. I've had a go at that, and they are way too straight laced. Um, <laughs> like, and they also they think it's absolutely amazing rowing on flat water in a straight line. And I'm like, mm, need waves, need waves. Okay. Like, it's too it's too two dimensional on a river so um but the the politeness about it like i mean i think it's a bit of a british thing as well because like rugby is our equivalent of like you know your american football and stuff and rugby players are are you know very um polite to each other afterwards very respectful of competition um so I think I think in the UK generally you just don't get that that kind of vibe with it. I mean we we so we know everybody off on the circuit. Like we'll you know there's you know some people are friends from it because they've grown up rowing together on the circuit. But then um, the rest of us, you know, we just if you know if I'm down in Penzance for work, I might message one of them and you know be like oh you know, go for a coffee or something. Um, so we see each other outside of rowing, and when we're on the beach, we chat catch up um but we do not talk about training we do not talk about what we're doing in the boat um and when we get in the boat they are our absolute worst enemies (laughs) (laughs) save it all for the road and there's games as well like you know um when Falmouth first came back they've got a, a varnished boat um and they're all quite big girls they wear black um, so they just practiced their start um, before the start and they just rode straight at us and then braked, turned around and, and went off. And it, they just tried to in- intimidate us. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't work. We won. So, fine. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's kind of like a bit, a bit of mind games. But um, yeah, on the beach, we're all 
chatty. I mean, in the major championships, you do avoid each other. You don't really go. You don't go and speak to each other too much at the major championships because there's just so much, like any sport at any level, you've put so much effort in. You just don't, you want to be in your own zone. We're a team sport, you know, more so than, you know, I used to play field hockey, you know, English field hockey at yeah. university and it's a team of 11. And that's a team sport, but it's nothing like rowing because you know you you have to be mirror images of each other you have to be identical you have to be doing the same thing all the time so you just end up so close um and you just don't want other people i mean even in our own club because the club's quite big we've got quite a few teams um but we we have to just sort of remove ourselves from you know everybody else's racing Mm -hmm. um and concentrate on our own preparation and stuff so um yeah. So I want to give plenty of time because I'm sure there's a, a lot you can talk about. I want to talk about your research because um, I obviously it seems pretty impactful to kind of how uh, I want to say humanity exists right now. Um, mm. You're doing research into litter in marine ecosystems. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, so I specialise in the smaller plastic um, marine litter, so we call it microplastics. Um, so anything, specifically anything less than five millimetres, but actually mostly the stuff that you can't see. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, tricky. It's not the easiest of um, subject areas, but um, yeah. So Plymouth um, in the UK my supervisor for my PhD, um, Richard, is called Richard Thompson, and he's kind of renowned in the, in the field of research. Um, he wrote a paper in 2004, and he was the first person to use the term microplastic, so he kind of coined the phrase. Um, and then he's uh, yeah, been involved with an awful lot of research since then. And we've got a fairly good team now here at Plymouth, um, some new lab facilities we've just... Um, you know, have built. So yeah, it's and Plymouth as a whole, there's a couple of marine institutes here uh, that deal with microplastics um, and marine litter. And it's quite a hub for it really worldwide. Um, we've, yeah, we've, we've been doing it for, for quite a few years down here. And um, we've had some really good, some good impactful papers um, in the field. So yeah, I mean, I, I so I started five years ago um, with microplastics when I came back to do my master's. Um, so I graduated in marine biology in 2004, um, tried to get some work, but everybody wanted two years experience um, and I couldn't afford to volunteer for two years, right. not get paid. So I sort of fell out of it really. Um, I got a job um, and then set up my own business um, doing something very random, um, designed and then got manufactured hand-painted picture tiles and got them made in China and then shipped them over here and sold them wholesale and um, online as well. So I did that for a couple of years, um, built the business up and then sold it in 2015 to come back and do my master's. I always knew I wanted to come back into marine science, but um, you have to be prepared to work for free for a bit really before you can academia is a bit of a tough one to get into mm-hmm. um 
So, yeah, so I did my master's um, and updated my knowledge with microplastics because it wasn't around when I did my degree. Um, right. And I've just stayed in the field, really, because Plymouth is so good at it. So we've just got world leading researchers here. So it's kind of stupid to, to move away from it at the moment um, here. But my master's um, project was looking at ingestion in wild fish larvae. So I wanted to see if fish larvae out um, of Plymouth uh, had any ingestion, any signs of ingestion of microplastics. And they did a small percentage. Um, and then after my master's, I went on a research cruise uh, for PML, Plymouth Marine Laboratory, and I went from the UK down to Antarctica on a ship um, measuring microplastics in the water and also in zooplankton, so the small like animals in the sea, the bottom of the food chain, um, they, uh, to see if they had any ingestion of microplastics as well. So I did that for a couple of years, kind of a bit paid, a bit not, and then got my PhD 18 months ago, um, which is a already, it's a, so PhDs in the UK work where the, the academic will get funding for a project and then they get a student in to do that project. So you have a brief that you, you're supposed to follow mm -hmm. as much as you can, but obviously like the student's got to want to do the work so you can change it a little bit um, and make it right. your own project. Um, but yeah, so I've, I've done microplastics for about five years. So when you're measuring microplastics, are, is, is a predominant amount of research looking at like the impact on wildlife or is it just saying hey, let's go take sa like samples in this particular area versus that particular area and then trying to measure the concentration of them or or is there like is there any i guess large push in a particular area or is it kind of scattered um yeah it's pretty scattered to be honest so um institutes tend to sort of specialize in different areas but um, there's been a lot of research sort of stating where microplastics and also larger plastics are in the environment and what animals have ingested it. But we're kind of, I feel like now we're kind of at the stage where we know, unfortunately, that plastics are just about everywhere. Um, and most animals will ingest them if they're susceptible to to ingesting them so it depends on their feeding strategy or depends on where they are if they're in an area of high concentration of plastics and of course you know that it's easy to mistake uh, a piece of plastic for food so um but the other major part of the research has been trying to determine what level of harm that will actually inflict on individuals and on populations and on ecosystems which is really tricky um, so that's done experimentally, you can't do that in the wild. So ecotox experiments mainly in labs, but the trouble is trying to um, reflect exactly what's going on in the environment is very difficult. So if you're going to feed an organism microplastics, you need to make the microplastics or buy them in, and most people buy them in. So they're virgin plastics out of a packet which is not like the plastics that they're experiencing in the environment that have been there for potentially years um, and have all the associated contaminants from the water, but also a biofilm of algae and bacteria and possibly mm -hmm. viruses. Um, so this, this sort of um, 
really sort of trying to find out the actual level of harm is very difficult. So, you know, you, most ecotox experiments will um, use doses that are increasing up until a point where they will inflict, you'll, you'll see the harmful level. Um, but these levels for plastics don't exist in many places, thankfully, um, we don't think. So it's then they're just not very realistic at the moment. Um, and you want to age the plastics as well. So maybe, you know, try and put them out in the sea for a bit and then back and then feed them to an organism. But that's difficult as well. So, um, yeah, we're we're still in sort of fairly early stages with with knowing um, exactly what level of harm at individual level. And then we modelers are now able to help ecologists scale up results to look at you know the, the whether there's going to be an effect on, at population level on ecosystems and specifically in the UK we're looking at, at an ecosystem services approach quite a lot now so if you want to sort of legislate against any of this um, sort of government here really wants to know the value um, of the damage of plastics so we, we need to put a price on everything. So ecosystem services are really important. So for instance, if wastewater um, is quite harmful with, you know, got a lot of plastics in it and is going out into an estuary where there's fish farms um, or shellfish farms and those say mussels are ingesting plastics um, and it's harming them and they, they're you know, higher mortality rate in, in the mussel farm than the actual physical monetary cost um, of that um, so there's a lot of a lot of work um, going on with that and then also the sources of plastics because we still aren't particularly sure where exactly they're coming from and at what levels um, and there's a split between obviously macroplastics mm -hmm. you, you have the potential to trace those a little bit easier because they might be a whole still intact right. plastic product that's recognisable to us, but microplastics are usually fragmented um, bits of, of larger plastic, or um, we find an awful lot of fibres in a natural environment. That's my main work. Um, so when we wash our clothing, that's synthetic. So especially for people that do a lot of sport and wear a lot of synthetic clothing, um, all of the fibres shed. A lot of fibres shed during the process of washing and that goes through into wastewater um, and although wastewater treatment is very good at removing particulates because that's what it's designed to do um, the sheer volume of water that's going through wastewater treatment means that there's still millions of particles going out into the marine environment for us because obviously the UK is an island so most of our effluent goes into straight out into the sea especially in the southwest right. um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really, really complicated research area because also like in the UK that people are already jumping to wanting to know what the solutions are. Mm -hmm. You know, we've it's great that there's a lot of media interest with it now. Right. It's really, really good. But the problem is that we don't really have the answers that people are asking the questions to. So um, we still need an awful lot of research to know you know, really what we can do to, to minimise impact and what we can do, do to minimise the amount of plastics going into the ocean in the first place.
Yeah, and seeing that that you said people are already asking the questions. Is that's and that's exactly where my head is. Or it's like, okay, I think we can recognize that this is a problem. But then you said like the government wants to put a price tag on it and say, well, what what's the dollar cost of this or or pound cost of this problem? And then it does the amount that it costs to fix it, is it worth whatever it's like okay, but yeah, my head goes to like there's you know the the ocean cleanup project that's trying to work on removing macroplastics, and I'd love your opinion on that. I you know I've heard kind of back and forth whether people think it's worthwhile or not. Um, but yeah, microplastics obviously being a much more troublesome thing just because how how do you sieve and filter the ocean of the planet? you know, like, down to mm-hmm. such a small degree. You know, well, that's not... I mean, they, they go smaller as well, because we, we've also started research now on nanoplastics. Right. So, but they're, they're, at the moment, there's no way of analytically detecting them. So you can't... It's not easy to, to find a... You can't visualise a particle very easily, and you can't... Um, detect chemically that it's there either if it's that small so that's a huge problem but problem with plastic is it's so durable mm. even in its micro nano phase it's still there and it's still potentially harmful to you know an appropriately sized organism so um i mean in our view within the science community here in, in plymouth um we kind of feel like we need to stop the tap of plastics rather than be cleaning it up in the ocean like it's not really the answer to say it's okay we'll clear it up mm-hmm. so the ocean cleanup is a good um it's a good sort of thing for media to to grab hold of but right. um my personal opinion is that it's it, that really should have been set up outside of harbours. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not really that practical because of shipping, but, um, you know, we need to stop it going out into the ocean in the first place. Um, and the cost of going out and actually collecting the rubbish that they're collecting is huge. You know, there's big, you know, it's a long way out into the ocean. So, right. um yeah, you know, in theory, it's a good idea, but actually, those things need to be in marinas and outside of effluent effluent sites. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it would be nice to have that amount of money invested in washing machines with filters and, you know, fabric weave technology, and you know, trying to stop fibre shedding and trying to develop more renewable fibers like bamboo um yeah so i mean a lot of it it's very it is very high profile so it's good that it's getting a message out that there's a problem yeah well it's it's actually something uh, it's good to talk to you because it's it, it, it's something i think about as the owner of a company that produces skincare products i often end up using maybe plastic bottles or like mm-hmm. plastic deodorant type tubes and I look for, can I find like a, a, you know, a paper equivalent or something that's biodegradable? And it's like, there are people working on it, 
to make something that's equivalent to the durability of plastic in terms of um, product transportation, that kind of things. But the few things that are available are so expensive comparatively that, like, economically, I can't use it. But at the same time, I'm like, it's also like, you can't not use it, too, because then you're, you know, you're making this negative impact on the environment. So it's like, I definitely, on a personal level, struggle with that um, as owner of a company that produces products that uses plastics. And I think about how pervasive plastics are in just at least the American economy in general, where it's like you go to the store, you want to get anything. It's probably in a plastic package. Yeah. You know, one one time use plastic package. It's very tough to get anything that's not. And even like, so um, as a hobby of mine, I make small batch ice cream and I buy cream from a local dairy, which comes in glass bottles. So they reuse the glass bottles but it has a plastic cap. Mm. So it's like, even there, it's that you haven't got completely away from, you know, no. having an origin source. Is the plastic cap recyclable and widely recyclable? I don't know. Um, often the caps that are on products here are not labeled mm. for the kind of recycling that we have at curbside pickup. And then that's another, that's, it's a good point, but also something I've thought about too is that I feel like I've seen reports where it just says like 90% of the plastic that's supposed to be being recycled, at least in this country, is just being thrown away. It's not actually being recycled. Yeah. So it's like, you know, we sort our recyclables. Um, we've got tons of boxes out because I get all kinds of shipping boxes in. It's like, oh, I'm not worried about the paper products, but even though we sort the plastic and send it out with the recycling, I'm not sure that it's actually getting recycled. No, no. And we have exactly the same thing here. And it's really frustrating. But um, yeah, so we, the kind of push, so my supervisor, Richard's kind of moved. Now he's sort of, he's head of our Marine Institute here. So he doesn't do so much research, but he does a lot of out, well, not outreach even. He deals a lot with government and with a lot of European Commission stuff. Um, so he's quite influential. Um, and he, really strongly believes and so do the rest of us that the problem with plastic isn't it's not it's an amazing product it's an amazing um you know it's revolutionized how we live as humans Mm -hmm. we can't do without it but whenever plastic is made it the the manufacturer should be responsible for its end of use or there should be no end of use so rather than you know single use packaging single use plastic should not be a thing that should you should there should be no such thing as single use plastic but the problem is that when products so for instance a sandwich in a supermarket so you know lunchtime sandwich the main product the main description for when somebody's designing the packaging is that it needs to be attractive and it needs to keep the food fresh for as long as possible mm-hmm. there is absolutely no brief for what the packaging does or where it goes after the person's eaten the sandwich and that priority needs to go at the top for a while mm-hmm. so that no packaging should be made without a thought of where it's going to go at the end mm-hmm. which would be great but then also from the other direction 
the government and councils need to pump more money into waste management so that we are clear across all counties or you know your districts the recycling the capabilities of recycling is the same because yeah i mean i i have no idea how much my of my recycling actually gets recycled mm -hmm. um and if i'm not sure if it can be recycled i throw it in anyway mm -hmm. but that's not a particularly good thing to do because it right. kind of up the whole recycling system yeah i do the same thing but you think like i don't want to put it in the bin i genuinely don't want to put it in the bin right and so like i'm like it shouldn't go in like you sh i shouldn't have to put this in the bin like come on <laughs> so um yeah it's tough uh, and we just the manufacturers of plastic have just had no responsibility until we hope now really um you know there needs to be there needs to be an approach from both directions so you know it's all well and good saying to consumers like we need to be responsible for what we're buying and yeah obviously but if you can't afford the the, the non-plastic alternatives then you know you you can't help it you really can't help but buy the cheaper products in plastic and that shouldn't be that person's fault mm -hmm. you know, it shouldn't they shouldn't they shouldn't have to you know feel guilty for buying plastic that's then not recycled so yeah just putting a, a higher value on plastic it's not disposable you know it's not a throwaway um resource anymore um but in countries like the uk and the us that's fine but um one of my research colleagues has just recently come back from india mm -hmm. <sighs> yeah big big issue yeah like I don't know how, I have no idea how they're going to tackle it. I mean, you know, I recently went to Japan for work as well, and everything's triple wrapped in Japan in plastic. Mm -hmm. um, and they're really clean society, and there's no litter, but everything is, is triple wrapped. So trying to change, you know, sort of cultural, it's, it is almost sort of a cultural thing, um, you know, with cleanliness, um, or, you know, in India, they just don't have waste management. Right. They still, you know, their litter, well, the river is, you know, they're like, well, we do get rid of our rubbish. We put it in the river. It, it gets taken away. <laughs> it's, it's not here anymore. So my problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but they, they just don't understand. Yeah. And they need bottled water, otherwise they'll get ill. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's. And, the, you know, the fishing industry as well. We, we find a lot of our beach litter is, is from the fishing industry here. Mm. Um, and how, how you tackle that. Um, again, like, until there's an alternative that is even possible or affordable or and affordable, you know, I don't really know how, how we can persuade a fisherman to spend more money on a different style of net or um i mean we do get a lot a lot of the beach litter is is bits of net that have been cut off when they've been fixing that and they do throw that overboard so that is something that could could stop so yeah it's a change a change of behavior as well i mean actually we've got a very strong environmental psychology department at plymouth university which looks closely into changing behavior and, and perceptions with litter yeah i was like there's so many facets of it that it's like, 
that's the thing. I <clears throat> it's tough for I think for one person to try to wrap their head around, it, especially me because I'm just not involved in it nearly as much as you are. It, you know, I come at come at it from kind of the business side, and to me, it's kind of it's one of those things where if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So I'm like, I think about it from like the the economy side where it's like, because I go to the grocery store, everything's in plastic. I go to, uh, you know, to like a general store. I want to go buy soap, you know, whatever it is for shampoo or detergent or, or dishwashing liquid or what. It's all in plastic. There's, it's so pervasive. I'm like, what's the most elegant solution? Whether it's possible, I don't know. But it seems like the most elegant solution is like a biodegradable form of plastic. And I, well, I don't know if that's possible. And the reason I say that, I'm happy to have your opinion on this, is that because I think of the alternative. Say, say we could, and this isn't this isn't derogatory towards you. I'm just trying to imagine. Um, say we could eliminate plastics entirely and use everything renewable, like in the case with. Um, the local dairy that sells things in the glass bottles. Say we could do everything in glass um, or paper. Like there, down the down the road from me, there's a new shop opening up that's like a soap refill place where if you ha- you have a bottle, you can bring it in, fill it, you use it at your home, then you go back to the shop and fill it again. So you're not buying a new bottle. Like that model's trying to come out, but it takes it's going to take s- like such enormous. Um, monetary resources to set up a completely different economic system that's why i'm like if we just could figure out how to make a biodegradable plastic or plastic equivalent doesn't have to be plastic um that that would be the most elegant solution to me but but i'd love to have your opinion on that Mm. well yeah i i agree and also some of the alternatives still have their own problems for instance if you switch over from synthetic clothing to cotton the cotton industry has its issues as well and what obviously is no good for vegans so yeah it's it's an absolute minefield um biodegradable plastics is a really hot topic um so there's an issue in the uk with labeling of plastics um a really big issue they say they're compostable um, and they actually mean industrially compostable. So they're not really compostable in like the general public's view. Right. Um, you can't stick them out in the backyard and have them biodegrade. And... Not everybody has an industrial composter in their back garden. They have a composter. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we've got to be really careful. And also there's quite a lot of research um, looking into effects of biodegradable plastic because all it kind of really means is that it will, it will degrade faster. Right. So, it will go from macro to micro faster and micro to nano faster, but we still don't know actually, um, you know, how long it stays around in the micro and the nano form. It'll still be long enough to cause harm, um, you know, because if it's just a year, it will cause harm if it's in the wrong place. Right. Um, but also there's additives. It's not just the plastic. It's all the additives and the coatings. So biodegradable glitter has got coatings on it and it's the same coatings as normal litter. So, you know, there's research at the moment going into to the levels of harm um, with all the different sort of levels of biodegradability um, of plastics. So we, it, it's been picked up on as a really good and quick, easy fix, 
but the research is now sort of um, trying to catch up uh, with industry um, and like rein everyone back in a little bit um, potentially um, because you know unfortunately um, it may not it may not be the answer um, not for the long term it's better but um, yeah we've got to be very careful um, I mean, with regards to what you can do in the house, um, as long, you know, if you can really figure out what is recyclable in your area, then don't be afraid of using clear or white plastic, you know, mm-hmm. nothing, anything that's, that's, you know, not got a really strong pigment in and is pure, like PET, polyethylene or, um, you know, acrylic can be recycled fairly easily but anything with a strong pigment in the recycling you know it's got no value in it because you know it's, it's just not something that they can add into other plastics when they melt it all down for recycling so mm-hmm. um but i mean we you know i just try and limit i'm just going back to simplifying things really you know i just use soap um and i i use shampoo in a bottle but i make sure it, the bottle is recyclable um, and I don't wash my hair that often. Well, I do, but you know, I just, um, yeah, you just, you just got to do every little bit that you can, but it's the classic thing where if you say you're just, you know, oh, it's such a big problem. I don't know what I can do it. You know, my little, you know, thing with using soap instead of shower gel, what good is that? But obviously if a million people say that, mm-hmm. then that's a million bottles. Um, and it's a significant, you know, significant amount of plastic that is just going to lie around, you know, in, in landfill potentially. So um, I think I think everyone's sort of just got to do their little little bit. Um, you've got to decide, you know, I'm happier to pay a little bit more money for a product that's not in plastic, but then that's me. You know, I am only on a student salary. Um, but I prioritise better quality without plastic than and, and you know less of it than than buying loads of stuff in plastic. You know I try not to to buy food on the run. I try and make sure you know I've got my metal mm-hmm. water bottle with me all the time, um, and I take lunches with me. You know I try not to rely on buying a lunch because I know it will come in single use plastic. Um, so it's just a change of behavior like you know you take your shop i don't know in the in the us about shopping bags but i take shopping bags with me wherever i go and it's yeah. natural um for me but we've just got to start doing these things like you wouldn't go out of the house without a raincoat so mm-hmm. don't go out of the house without your bag and your water bottle as long as as long as it's easy for you to fill up the water bottle in the UK now, we you know you can ask just about anywhere and they'll fill up your water bottle. But yeah. five years ago, they would have said, "Well, are you buying something?" Mm-hmm. But it's not like that now. I mean, we've had the the Attenborough effect, we call it over here. So Sir David Attenborough is our 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 BBC nature yeah. um, guy. So when he did Blue Planet two a couple of years ago, there was a huge shift in public perception of plastics. After that, it really like massively changed uh, the conversations I had with people. Um, yeah, it was it was really good. Everyone suddenly became really worried about it. So um, 
that's really helped with with trying to create these these smaller solutions on a day-to-day basis um you know the shops in plymouth are much more aware of of you know providing an alternative to plastic cutlery or you know single-use plastics straws um things like that so it it's gonna get there it will get there but we we just need some backup from industry um really at this point um we're really at a time where I, I, I think we're not far from one of the really, really big companies. Um, maybe not sort of Coca-Cola, but, um, you know, in the UK. Um, I'm really hoping that one of the big brands will will just go plastic free mm-hmm. uh, where they can. And, and then it will just be a, a roller coaster from their hope, you know, a rollerball effect, um, you hope. Yeah. I know I'm that you mentioned the bags in the store and I know that there's starting to be like small incentives. Like um, we went to Hawaii on vacation last year and they have like a, a new law that charges for bags. If you get plastic bags, it charges for them. So if you bring your own bags, you don't get charged or here. Um, uh, I'm the madman that walks around the store without a cart or, uh, or like a shopping basket or anything. I'm carrying everything to the checkout and then they try to put it in the bags and I say don't do that and then I walk out with everything like as a bundle to my arms because I forget the bags but I'm like don't give me the plastic bags and we do still end up with them from time to time but just like I, I used to be several years ago I'd do that and everybody looked like I'm crazy and then more and more it's been like okay I get it like you're not the only weirdo that does this like if this is happening more often so i have a little bit of hope that slowly maybe people are adopting these kind of habits um we think in the uk we think of the us being still using like paper bags no it's it's almost it's it's absurd depending on the store like like walmart is a good example if you're not going to self-checkout which there's no cashier you just bring your own items up and bag them however you want but it it would be that you could go, or the grocery store is especially bad, any grocery store, you go, you'll have, say you have a dozen items. Somehow they'll give you six bags. You're like, those would all fit in one bag. Why are you giving me six bags? It's like they want to give you as many bags as they possibly can. It's like, what? Like who trained you to do this? Because this is the work. There's something about, it's true. I, think, I think part of it is like trying to separate things like, Produce goes in one bag and meat goes in one bag and then like chips goes in another bag. And it's like, there are a lot of these things you can put in one bag together and it's perfectly fine. See, that's the behavior thing. Like, yeah, we've, we've just been accustomed to convenience and hygiene as well as part of it. Um, And we just need to backtrack a little bit and prioritize the environment over stuff that we don't really need in an everyday life um but people don't prioritize the environment at all right um as you know a lot of the time you know money money is the primary driver for what people are purchasing so um it's yeah the psychology of it is really interesting yeah i mean if i've learned anything um from being an entrepreneur is that 
as as a consumer, and I don't, you know, this obviously is a broad stroke, but as a consumer, people just seem to care about how will it affect me, and if there's not this like immediate effect, basically immediate, then I don't care. Mm. You know, so if we're thinking about like this grand impact on the environment, it's like it's nice. Like I talk about, um, you know, there are companies that are like B corporations that basically benefit nonprofits or some kind of cause outside of the business itself. So some of those could be, you know, like funding research on the environment, but people are like, at least my understanding of people's consumer behaviors is they're not going to buy a product just because it benefits, you know, the, the environment they'll brought, they'll buy it if it solves their problem and they Mm -hmm. like it. And if, if it also it helps the environment, that's just a side benefit. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, is my camera frozen? Uh, a little bit, but that's yeah, okay. I, yeah. Don't we're know, we're, we're way over time, but I did not, <laughs> I'm sure we could keep going. Um, yeah. it's, but, I think it's just that it can't connect to my chosen camera. So I think it's just had enough. That's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Um, well, so we'll, we'll, we'll kind of wrap up here. So I'm asking everybody, um, this year, the same question. And the question I'm asking everybody this year is what do you think the purpose of sport is? Hmm. Well, I feel like it's for my, my mental health. I feel like I've relied on sport sort of subconsciously without realizing but the older I get and if I have spells where I don't do it I certainly feel like I lose my little venting stream um so it's kind of like my happy bug um so for me yeah um my purpose for sport is to feel feel a mental and physical purpose it's a good answer. I haven't got that one yet. So I'm interested to see what everybody says this year since it's it's such a broad question and I think sport affects us all a little bit differently. So I, I love to hear what other people, you know, think and how it kind of participates in their lives. Um, Maddie, thanks for spending some time with me. Uh, if people want to find you or see your research, keep up with you know, microplastics and what you guys are doing, um, where can people find you? Um, well, my science stuff is on Twitter, um, although I'm not, I'm not like hugely uh, great at making sure I keep things up to date, um, which is Maddie Steer. Um, so, um, which is, I guess you might have my name written down because it's yeah, I do. Maddie. It's not really a proper Maddie. It's Maddie, apparently, according to my English teacher. I spelled my name wrong. Um, but uh, and I'm on Instagram as well. Um, and if they want to look at gig growing, just Google it. And there's a lot of YouTube uh, videos of gig growing in the UK. And um, science-wise as well, if you Google Plymouth University and Madeline Steer, I've got um, a website on the Plymouth University website. And you can look into what our research group does. Is that, if that's the link, we'll talk about this after, but I'll, um, I'll try to include a link for people on YouTube. Um, or get in the description on SoundCloud, I'll try to include a link in the description that'll click you straight over uh, to that research page. Yeah. 
thanks for spending some time with me, Maddie. That's no problem. Nice to speak to you. Take care.